Sarah, thanks for joining us. Um, thanks for having me. Massachusetts. Are you in Massachusetts at the moment? I am sitting in my house in Newton, Massachusetts right now. Lovely. Okay, good. It looks like the sun is shining. I want yeah. to take you back to 1988-1989 and uh, Chicago and art history. Okay. So <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll start there and kind of say, how did you get to that point? So tell us a little bit about, okay. about you know, kind of what happened in advance of that and how you ended up doing study in art history. Oh, I, well, I love the question and it is kind of, um, in many ways, I don't know if you guys feel like this, but that feels like yesterday. And yet I realized I just celebrated my 49th birthday. So it most definitely was not yesterday. <laughs> um, but 88 and 89, I would have been sitting in my, my row house where I grew up in Capitol Hill uh, in Washington, DC. So I grew up with two very politically active parents uh, on East Capitol Street, um, which is a road, if you know DC well, that dead ends into the US Capitol. And so I grew up at 9th and East Capitol. You could see the US Capitol and the Supreme Court and the Library of Congress out my front door, literally. That was my backyard and my parents could walk to work uh, because both of them wow. worked on the Hill for their whole careers. Cool. And, um, and I did grow up with this really intense, uh, sense of how lucky I was and with values that were um, so in just, you know, imbued in me by my parents that, uh, that I was really lucky and had an obligation to use my good fortune to really, while it sounds trite, to give back and to make a contribution to trying to make um, the world a better place. And uh, while I was sitting there in 88 and 89, I was in a very intense, small high school. I had gone to public school in Washington, DC, where I was one of very few um, light-skinned children. Uh, but then um, uh, heading into middle school, my parents put myself and my brother in private school. It was this really intense private school where honestly, I just kind of never, I was never the smartest kid. And found a way to kind of find my own niche, which was in art. Um, and that allowed me to feel like, okay, this is something I am better at um, uh, and have kind of, you know, unique uh, capabilities toward. And so I applied to art school for college and went to the School of the Art Institute of, of Chicago. Um, but I do think it was somewhat actually a little bit of a rebellion against this really intense family where my, my mother was an arms control lobbyist and my father worked in the house and then the Senate is a uh, chief of staff for 20 plus years and we talked about um, arms control at the dinner table and I had this intense academic experience and, and I was like get me out I'm doing something <laughs> totally different. So off to Chicago you went and studied. Off to Chicago I went to study art history and printmaking and photography. Oh wow. Wow. I did not know this so I was so curious Martin when you asked why that specific time and and i guess it, it just makes sense that's that's incredible but i did discover that my parents had basically ruined me um <laughs> so while i loved art i had a very hard time not that people can't i couldn't reconcile that i got to be making a measurable direct contribution to you know improving the world and uh, and the kind of art i was making which was much which was not really politically activist art at all and okay. so i got through college and was sort of like okay <laughs> 
Now what? <laughs> yeah. So, so this is this is really fascinating how people's careers and, and sort of hit the you know, uh, sorry academic backgrounds. So, so then you you ended up well, you didn't end up, but like a couple of years later, you're in Harvard at the the Chan School of Public Health. You know, so so how do you get from Chicago art to to there? Well, some admissions officer was clearly, you know, off their game that day. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but in truth, what happened was I, um, I followed uh, my heart to Boston. Okay. Uh, so I had been after college uh, dating a guy uh, who had taken a year off to, to work in politics, uh, to work in the Clinton campaign when we were in college. It was a year behind me. He was in Boston. And as I said, I was like, I don't know what to do after college. And so I um, moved, moved to Boston um, to be with him. And, uh, and I had a family friend who worked in healthcare and who uh, helped connect me to an internship at the Visiting Nurse Association of Boston, um, where I ended up parlaying that you know, fundraising oriented internship into, they created a new, uh, you know, kind of entry level um, role uh, that was called a patient care coordinator. So I was coordinating a signing of, uh, of, you know, VNA patients with their nurses, uh, but ended up staying in that organization for more than three years and working my way up in the organization and then having it kind of occur to me, I'm not a clinician. I found healthcare fascinating for reasons we'll talk about. Uh, but realized I, I, the next logical step for me, given how relevant my undergrad training was to this career path, um, that uh, grad school made sense. And so I actually applied to public policy programs all over the country, knowing I wanted to focus on health policy, um, but, uh, but ended up getting into the um, Harvard School of Public Health. And at the time, didn't really, I liked Boston, didn't make sense to move. Um, so. okay. And as I said, some admissions officer clearly my application you know, slid by. You're too modest. Too, too modest. <laughs> so you found you found your passion then, and then you know if you look at your career then going through Massachusetts Hospital Association, and then you know rather rapidly up through the ranks. You know we we'll talk about what you said. You found your your kind of your home or your passion. What what was that? What was that? Was that like a eureka moment, or was it a series of steps, or what was it that said, okay, I'm healthcare is the thing for me and healthcare policy and healthcare, you know, what, what was it that drove that? Yeah, um, a great question. I try to be really, really honest about this, particularly as a mother of three teenagers who were at that point of trying to figure out, you know, I've got one applying to college, she's starting her senior year in high school and one in college who's facing, you know, what do I want to major in and my daughter facing, you know, what school do I want to go to? And we put so much pressure on these kids as yeah. though these decisions are going to really truly impact the rest of your life. And actually, I don't think they do. I think you have to just do something, yeah. choose something, pick something, do something, pour yourself into it. And it's that commitment to working hard um, that develops the muscle that you can, I think, at most any point in your life, if you've got that kind of grit and ambition, pivot to do something else. And so that's really what I try to say. Look, look at my life. I went to art school and now I'm a healthcare executive. Like I lived this. You can pivot. And so for me, I would love to say that it was all really intentional, but you know, it wasn't. I had a friend who you know, the family who helped me get this internship because I needed a job so that I could, you know, pay my share of the rent. Um, but once I stumbled into healthcare, 
And it just really resonated as both incredibly complicated, mm -hmm. incredibly expensive, that it didn't serve people well, our system, despite the fantastic intentions of all of us who work in the system. And that it most often really failed people when we were in our most absolute, fragile, and vulnerable moments of our lives. Mm -hmm. And getting to work in the VNA, which, you know, for those of you who know the VNA model, these, um, you know, they're the oldest home care um, organizations that existed. The VNA Boston was actually the first VNA in the United States. Um, and uh, you're caring for, I mean, the most uh, low income, medically frail and vulnerable members of our society. And it just, it, it was, it just so resonated with me as uh, while there was great work happening there, what an opportunity we had to do better. And so I saw it as a place where, hey, this is important. It touches everyone. Yeah. It's not working as well as it could. I see how I could make a contribution in this space. And then it just sort of built from there. And I got you know more and more interested in both vulnerable populations and making healthcare more affordable and getting involved in policy because we can talk more about this because I really believe government has a critical role to drive broad um, scale and more rapid adoption of solutions that work. And, you know, here I am 25 years later, um, hoping that there are some things that I can point to to say, I made a contribution there, but we've got a lot of work left to do ahead of us. And you would have been, you know, deeply involved in a lot of the policy that was being set out in Massachusetts you know, going back kind of end of 2010, that, that, that period, right, which then obviously went on to more national things. Talk, talk, could you talk a little bit about that? Because that was, you know, it's quite a fundamental shift in policy and kind of what the, what the experience was on the ground and then, you know, how, how you see that kind of moving forward over the last 10 years. Yeah, I love talking about this. So thank you for, I love talking about it in part because it gets me to get to think back and reflect on it. It was a really extraordinary um, moment in time uh, in terms of significant progress that ultimately influenced the national policy uh, debate in the United States that ultimately you know, resulted in the passage and implementation of the Affordable Care Act, which has had an incredible um, uh, impact on getting more people health insurance, which has gotten them access uh, to healthcare. And so being able to be a part of that uh, was a profound moment in my career. And again, one of those things that, you know, right place, right time, I had, as I shared with you, you know, kind of, it's not like I saw this all coming and decided to pick living in Massachusetts. <laughs> Right, exactly. The big crystal ball I had about all these amazing things that were going to happen. Not, um, but once I started working in healthcare in Massachusetts, I found myself connected in part through um, my the graduate school that I picked, the people that I met there, and a profoundly wonderful mentor in Nancy Turnbull, um, who's one of the uh, let me get this wrong, As, uh, assistant deans, I just get assistant and associate because I'm okay. not an academic wrong. So yeah. One of those um, at the Harvard School of Public Health right. um, who became an incredible mentor of mine and helped connect me as I was looking for summer internships during graduate school to a whole community of leaders who themselves 
had worked in government and been a part of the Dukakis administration and had been working at that point already for decades on healthcare access issues. And so I kind of fell into this crowd that ultimately helped me um, get positioned for the kinds of job opportunities that I had in Massachusetts. So I had four different jobs working for the now CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Andrew Dreyfus, who's you know, the next uh, most significant mentor in my professional career. Um, and when we were together, when he was the first president of the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts Foundation, we led a policy initiative called the Roadmap to Coverage that played a role convening leaders in the state to talk about how do we solve this seemingly intractable problem of the uninsured? Um, and there were a lot of other dynamics going on in the state. Yeah. And I want to pause, pause you there for a second, Sarah. So yeah. What what was it that made that happen at that time? You know, was it was it sort of a series of things, or was it pure leadership, or what was it that got that kind of, as you said, massive intractable problem kind of yeah. moving forward? It's a great story, and I would encourage. There've been a few a few things written about it, including um, John McDonough has written some really great pieces for Commonwealth Magazine that tells the story in much more detail than I'm going to be able to tell it right now. But it was a combination of things. So incredible leadership uh, in this state, but but leadership that wasn't concentrated just in the healthcare system. It was business leaders. It was consumer advocacy leaders, it was religious leaders, um, the leadership of the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization and, and healthcare leaders and government leaders. Um, mm -hmm. So remember, we had a Republican governor in Mitt Romney um, when this law got passed and Democratic leadership in the uh, State House uh, and the Senate. And so it was even bipartisan um, at the moment. We were able to kind of lift up um, out of partisanship to recognize healthcare access as really being, you know, a, a social justice, a social equity issue. Hard to believe now, um, but that was true at the time. And then there were some structural things around we'd had a federal waiver that unlocked a lot of federal financing um, to support an earlier Medicaid expansion that was expiring and that was gonna to need to be renegotiated in Washington, DC. So there was a little bit of a burning platform around this hundreds of millions of dollars of federal funds that went in to support healthcare access in Massachusetts. It was up for renegotiation. So, so there were all of these different factors and leaders and, um, and, and that, that brought this all together and got this law passed, the implementation of the law started immediately. So you also got some quick wins that generated momentum and collective pride and the success that kept it going. Right. Um, and then obviously then got the attention of, uh, of the policy community at the national level. And so those coverage related provisions, the Affordable Care Act was much bigger um, than the coverage related provisions, but really were an inspiring case study Mm -hmm. um, as the political environment was such, you even had some of the Massachusetts leaders go to DC um, to try to take the model um, national. So it was a really a privilege um, and an extraordinary moment in time to be able to play a play a role in. Um, wow, that's incredible. And you, I guess you kind of circled back and went into your parents' um, line of work eventually. I did, although they coached me early on, they said, and this has never been better advice than the moment in time that we're in, in this exact moment in the United States, both of my parents had spent their whole careers working at the federal level. So my mother running political action committees and my father is a, 
a staffer, as I mentioned earlier, in, in Congress, they said, go work in a state. It's gotten so, and remember, they were giving me this advice 25 years ago, yeah. saying over the course of their careers, they watched things get more and more partisan and watched it get harder and harder to get things done. And so 25 years ago, they were coaching me to say, don't come to DC. If you really want to be in a place where you can drive change, work at the state level, um, which is a sad commentary on where we are, but I think it's even more true now than it was then. But it's also inspiring. But I did, I did ultimately follow them. They're quite yeah. happy about it. <laughs> but I guess it's interesting to sort of inspiring to think about, you know, as you say, a group of community leaders coming together in a, in a bipartisan way, having the funding there to make it real and then having a kind of defining moment that you have to do something about it and then, mm -hmm then it turning into a success that then can be taken, you know, nationally. So it's, we, could, we could do a whole series on this, no doubt. But um, let's, let's move forward a little bit, Sarah, to like where we are today. And yeah. like, you know, people talk a lot about innovation and healthcare and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of press and there's a lot of talk and there's, there aren't that many a, a real examples. So we did a piece of work, a little report on maturity of, of digital for payers, you know, so, uh, so I'd love your, I'd love your kind of broad perspective on, you know, as you, as you have this broad picture of broad experience in healthcare, kind of where you think payers are at in terms generally, just your kind of take on where you think they're at in terms of both innovation and digital innovation. And then we'll dig in a little bit further and, and, and kind of see where we go from there. Great. Well, and first, let me just commend you, uh, the two of you and your leadership, because I do think you're doing reports like this and all of the work that you do by shining a light on innovation, by bringing people together, makes a significant contribution in our learning in a certain amount of kind of, you know, peer dynamics that creates a dynamic where we want to up our game, but also helps us get smarter about um, in the startup community, who is out there that are doing things that really merit our paying attention to. So kudos to you guys, because I think you're making a contribution and helping payers get better. So to answer your question, I, I just kind of want to own up um, where healthcare doesn't work well. And I don't think it's unique to payers. I think it's the, the healthcare system. And I don't just think it's in the US. I mean, I think there are some parts of the world that do better in digital, um, particularly in Asia. But um, but I, I think it's a pervasive problem um, in the healthcare system in general. And I think it's one that we're being more honest about and investing more deeply in. Uh, but I think if you look at the amount of spending devoted to healthcare in the US, um, I'm not proud of where the system stands right now in terms of the way in which we respond to consumers' needs and desires relative to the amount we expect consumers to spend um, on healthcare. And I do think that there are pockets of innovation that we can point to, um, but I would, to your point, like there to be many more. And so I think within the, the healthcare system, and I'll now pivot to talking specifically about the payer side, we're going to have to continue to fight the fight because some of these investments, which are about catching up um, to consumer expectations that have been met in other sectors, um, you know, in retail, in banking, um, in others, it gets harder to fight for the dollars to catch up um, in environments where there's more and more pressure. And we are heading into one of those environments because of the impact of COVID on the economy. 
um, appropriately, where people are really saying like healthcare is really expensive and we can't afford um, the rate of increase that we've been you know asked to absorb every year. Um, but it gets harder then um, to maintain the level of investment that's needed. Uh, and you know we've got to aim those investments toward things that are really creating value um, within healthcare. So you know ideally that are having a positive impact on people's health outcomes, on managing medical expense, uh, on making the administration of our healthcare system more efficient. Um, but I think we've still got a long way to go, even though there are some things that I think we can point to and feel great about. I mean, within our own organization, we've made uh, our Florida Blue Medicare business reports up to me. We've just made a big investment in building solutions to engage our senior um, consumers in their in their healthcare experience more directly through new tools, multi-channel, web, app-based. Um, so I feel proud of that, uh, but I also know there's a lot more that we can do. Yeah. I think that's a very fair assessment and an honest assessment. Why do you think that's the case, Sarah? What What are the you know, you can look at it in one regard, and most people I know in healthcare are really trying to do the right thing. They're working very hard, you know, they're kind of overloaded with work, and then there's all this complexity to it. So there's lots of kind of reasons why, you know, it may not be the most innovative industry. What's your, what's your take on the barriers? Like, what's, what's stopping us moving forward? Oh, and I think there are so many, and so I'll just highlight a few that I think are relevant to different parts. Right, yeah. Um, so, you know, I would say on the consumer experience side, one of the things that's so tricky is how siloed the system is. So for most consumers, they're not living in California in a place where there are a staff model Kaiser type, you know, integrated payer and delivery system available. So most people have a health plan. They have a separate primary care doctor. Their specialists or wherever they go for tests might or might not be at that site. It might be at another provider and their hospital may or may not may be an independent freestanding entity that is not affiliated explicitly organizationally with their primary care doc or that place that they go to get their labs done. Yeah. So just coordinating the sharing of information across of all, all of those and knowing who to call when and what's going to cost what, there's a lot of complexity there. And then layering on that complexity, it looks different in every community. Yeah. So depending on where you live, it's a different relationship, a different payer, different providers. And so it, solving for that ends up happening kind of community by community, not an excuse um, because we can look at equally complex industries that have made more progress, but it does require a level of leadership will um, to break down those barriers. And sometimes that's very hard to do without public policy leadership right. um, setting the rules. Right. right. Uh, so that's just sort of one space, I think, around the real complexity. Another is you've got that is related to this, but you've got a lot of organizations who've been here for a really long time. So I'll speak from the health plan seat. We're a 75 plus year old health plan. Um, and sometimes I feel very envious of colleagues who are at startup health plans who have the luxury of designing their tech stack from a white piece of paper. <laughs> yeah. um, we don't. Yeah. We have a lot of different legacy systems. And so you may be talking to a really innovative entrepreneur who wants to, you know, API into you and you'd love to say it's that easy. But then I have to like, you know, you got to talk them through. We've got 24 different systems of record, depending on which system you need to interact with. Like it, there's just an inherent level of complexity when you 
had a big scale organization that's been around for a while and you can't just start over from a blank sheet of paper because we don't have unlimited um, capital. So, um, so I think that's, I think that's part of it. And then I think there's a, a whole other aspect that we're, uh, I mean, there are many, many dimensions, but I'll highlight one other one, which is around privacy. I think we're also as a society really grappling with one of the things that we know would speed the ability to make this whole thing more logical would be to share patient clinical information across these institutions. But I think we're all trying to figure out how do you do that while also ensuring that you are protecting confidential, incredibly sensitive health information? And I don't think we've figured out what our comfort level is with that as a society yet. Yeah. Those are just a few. I could oh, keep yeah, going. I think they're spot on. Yeah. Chandan, sorry, did you want to come in? Yeah, no, sorry. I just wanted to pick up on a couple of the things you mentioned, and I feel like a couple of things uh, were just rolling around in my head based on a lot of the things you've mentioned right from, from the start. What, in your opinion, you know, do you think, first of all, that, you know, us medicalizing a lot of social economic inequalities and issues that exist, do you actually think that that might be driving up the cost of the solutions almost? Um, because, right, there's, there's medicine and there's healthcare, there's different things, and maybe we're mixing them up and, you know, the same ride share would cost less if I did it just as a, a regular guy rather than a sick patient. Um, I'd love to hear a bit about how you think that might be driving up the cost and, and follow that up with maybe, you know, we, we've kind of identified the pain points and what's not working, but what kind of structures do you think will enable and, and help in addressing whether it's inequalities, access, um, all of that? Yeah, sorry. Great, great questions. I will try and do them justice. I'm sure I won't, but I'll try. So on the first, one of the things that I love about the community conversation that we're having about healthcare is the recognition to your point that keeping people healthy, keeping communities healthy is about more than accessing the healthcare delivery system. It's not just about going to your doctor and um, you know and getting labs done once a year or managed. It's it's a recognition that particularly if you're struggling with a chronic disease, good luck to managing that if you don't have access to healthy food, um, if you don't have safe, stable, and affordable housing in a place where you can cook and prepare those meals, um, if you don't have access to affordable healthcare so that you can leave your child somewhere and go to your job to make the money to be able to afford all of those other things. Um, and uh, and so, so they're all connected. Yeah. However, and so I think we all recognize that now, um, which is great. And I think there's been, to your point, some flexibility in how payers, whether that's us as private payers or whether that's the government, there's been more openness to what we will pay for, to your point, as part of the medical benefit. So in the US, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has allowed Medicare Advantage plans to add on supplemental benefits um, for certain number of Medicare beneficiaries who have chronic diseases so that we can offer things like transportation, yeah. um, so that we can fund things that address loneliness, these things that we know those kinds of mental health challenges really impact your physical health. Yeah. However, to get those things to scale at a time where we are trying, you know, employers who finance so much of, we're paying for so much of the 
um, health insurance, cost of health insurance in the United States, at least, are, you know, as we alluded to earlier, asking the question of why is, why are my premiums going up every year faster than the growth of my, you know, bottom line and then the economy in general, I can't afford this. It's eating into more and more of my, you know, profits uh, and ability to invest in my business. Perfectly valid question. But when, when you're under that kind of cost pressure to keep healthcare affordable, then it gets really tricky to figure out, well, how do we fund the, all of these other things that we know people need to stay healthy. And so what you end up stuck in is a system in which all the sources of funds are incredibly siloed. So as a former, we didn't, you know, I was actually a former regulator. I worked in state government, as Martin alluded to at one point in my career. We had a, a great slide that uh, I stole from Nancy Turnbull. She and I used to use a lot together, what demonstrated that over a 10-year period, so this is now seven years ago when I was in state government, the spending on healthcare delivery had gone up um, by more than 30% at the time. Meanwhile, the spending on public health, on education, on housing support, on all of these other things that we're talking about that we know affect people's health had gone down by an equal amount. But how do you break down those, how do you break down those silos so we can see it? But how do you break down those silos of funding to have rational allocation of funds going to the right people in a way that creates more net health and creates more net value to what we're spending? And we've got a long way to go to figure that out. But I think we're having the right conversations and that's where it has to start. That was your first question. To your point about legacy and complexity and all this, do you, do you think you can incrementally get there? You know, like, you know, US spends twice, roughly twice what the rest of the world is. Uh, do you think you can incrementally get there? Or do you think you need things like COVID where now all of a sudden we start to get used to using telehealth and, and using video? Like, what's your, what's your, sorry, I jumped across there. But well, I guess the little bit is like the, what's the there? So I think one of the things that we continue to struggle with in the U.S. that you less so um, on the other side of the, on the other side of the, of the ocean is we still have a high percentage of the U.S. population that's uninsured, despite all the progress we've made in right. the Affordable Care Act and in some states that didn't pursue the Medicaid expansion, um, that uninsured rate is even higher. And so I don't, I think we don't have a choice but to get there incrementally. So we're in a, you know, in a political primary season right now. And you can see there was a very active debate on the Democratic side around expanding access to health coverage and Medicare for all and other things that are ultimately not going to be a part of the platform for the Democrats. And so I think as it relates to healthcare access in the US, we are um, in an incremental progress space um, as it relates to that issue. But I do think that there are opportunities, um, as you pointed out with COVID, many people were resistant to telehealth because they didn't feel like it was going to, you know, they were going to get the same level of attention mm. um, or quality of diagnosis or engagement, um, you know, via video. And I think this will have a long-term effect on how people think about that, in part because people don't want to they don't want to leave their houses or go into, I think there's a greater level of sensitivity to, oh, the other people who are in this bricks and mortar doctor's office are probably here for a reason. Yeah. And I don't want the reason they're here. <laughs> so if I don't have to come in here and introduce myself exactly, to whatever they have, COVID or something else, I'd really rather not be here. I think there's just greater awareness of 
um, infectious disease transmission as a result of COVID. Um, and that's a good thing. I think we're a long way out from knowing, are we able to use that um, virtual visit uh, capacity in a way that doesn't end up being cost additive? Mm -hmm. So as a payer, I think, I don't think in the long term we should be paying the same amount um, for a video or a telehealth visit that we pay for an in-person visit. But I know that my friends who work on the provider side, a lot of them don't agree with me. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting topic. I mean, one of the things we're trying to get our heads around is, you know, we're not going to have events anymore, you know, so now, yeah. you know, so, you know, people are used to paying five or 6,000 to go to JP Morgan. And now they're saying, well, webinars. For That's zero. just for their hotel, I think, by the way. Right, right. <laughs> Forgetting about anything. Forget about having a cup of coffee, right? And then, exactly. then at the other end, you have, you know, well, a webinar zero and, and, a, and a, a Zoom is a zero cost, you know? So uh, people are trying to understand this new pricing model. And uh, yeah, I think it will take us a while to figure it out. And it's really tricky because people aren't gonna embrace the new pricing model until they see a path. I'm sure you feel like this running a business. Well, how do I get those fixed costs that that old business model used to cover? How do I get those out of the system? Yeah. And then you're also doing that in a way that is also really mindful and intentional about the economy. I mean, one of the things we're trying to be so mindful about is recognizing that we're a major employer in our community and really wanting to be protective of our people um, and their jobs and their economic well-being. And so I imagine it's less of an issue on the, you know, the payer side's just been hit less hard by this. Um, yeah. But on the provider side, I mean, many, many providers are the largest employers in their communities. And so that business model shift to virtual, yeah. it's, it's both tricky to get the bricks and mortar costs out of the building. You're trying to figure out, is this durable or not? And then you're also trying to think about that evolution of your business model in terms of like, taking care of, of your people, yeah. um, you know, for employees and staff. And so I feel great empathy for the business challenge. And yet, um, I think we've got to figure this out because the rate of growth of healthcare spending in the U.S., to your point, if you're already at double, um, you know, the next highest spending country with outcomes that are good in many ways, but in others are, could be better. Other people are getting better outcomes with lower spending. Um, there's an incredible imperative and opportunity. So. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because if if I think about a startup that is trying to make these things available to say the, the ones who need it the most, but then this interoperability and just connection challenges to working with, uh, say, a payer, for example, but they want to reach these audiences at a at a good price for the consumer, how are they going to make money serving these? these underserved populations without the support. And I think, yeah, you've kind of touched on it, but I was just thinking about that stakeholder group as well. It's just so challenging. It's so challenging. And so I also think this is one of those places where when you're in these moments, you really do need, you need policy and leadership. So, um, you know, whether that's around driving broad adoption of innovation. You know, once you've got a, enough of a case study um, to show that something works, you can often accelerate uh, adoption um, by pulling uh, or turning the right, you know, policy knobs and, and levers. Um, and, uh, and I think we've got uh, an opportunity to do better um, uh, on that uh, in the U.S. <laughs> I think, frankly, our lack of coordinated COVID response um, is a, is a, is a, testament to that, um, even despite the efforts of lots of uh, you know, people who are working really hard. 
And I love um, this, this anecdote that I heard uh, around this time, maybe about a month, about, maybe 11 months ago um, from the New York Times has been doing the 1619 project, marking the fact that it's been four, 400 years um, since, uh, since slavery started uh, in the United States. And in that series last fall, um, which I you know, listened to in the podcast, I heard a, a story about the power of government that I actually had not really focused on before that I think is so powerful, um, which was uh, that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did lots and lots of things. And one of the provisions of the Civil Rights Act in the US was the ability for organizations to be denied access to federal funds if they didn't comply with the law. And uh, a couple of year later, the Medicare program was created. And that was obviously an incredible opportunity for all of the, the players and the providers and the hospitals um, to have patients that they were seeing now have a source of insurance coverage um, to, to pay their bills. And at this point in the mid 60s, most hospitals in the United States were segregated. So depending on the color of your skin, and in some cases, your religious status, you may have been seen in a, in a different floor, in a different building. Wow. When the Civil Rights Act passed and the Medicare Act passed, we saw inside of a four-month period, the first four months of implementation of the Medicare law, 3,000 hospitals in the United States desegregated wow. in four wow. months. Fantastic. Yeah. That's a great story. So I think it's a great story around once we know what the right thing is to do, we've got tools and levers to drive change quickly yeah. where there's the will to do it. Um, but it makes me feel really hopeful about yeah. as we learn more and more about what works, that we actually have institutions and structures that can drive broad adoption um, of the right thing to do. It's a great example, Sarah. So, so That's, how, sorry. go ahead, <laughs> I was going to ask, what advice do you have? I mean, I'm sure you're inundated with passionate entrepreneurs who are going to fix healthcare and they have the best technology ever and they've figured it all out. And then they're saying, okay, Sarah, just let us at your customer. You know? So <laughs> what advice do you have to them given, you know, all that background that we just, we just chatted about? Well, first keep at it because we need it given everything we've talked about in this conversation. And so um, I have just such deep respect for people who have the big ideas and have the tenacity to just keep fighting the fight um, to get traction um, and, uh, and to make progress working on, um, on all of these issues and challenges. And there are so many opportunities and yay to working in healthcare because you know it's the same reason we all work there. Um, it affects all of us. Um, yeah. There is no way to escape um, healthcare, and uh, and let's make it you know high quality and and uh, and efficient and affordable so that everybody has access to it. So I would say one, keep at it, don't give up. Um, the other is I think the more that people are really focused, realizing that when you're selling into whether it's a payer or a provider. What is your value proposition? How do you get into their heads to really understand not just why it's a great idea, um, but, to, but to get at what's gonna make it compelling for them. And so as a payer, if you're bringing something to me that is going to reduce our medical expense, 
Um, that's, those are going to be the kinds of things that are the most compelling because that's where the vast majority of the premium dollar goes, 80 to 85 or more percent of the premium dollar is being spent on healthcare delivery. So if you've got something that is going to help us manage that expense more effectively, that's going to be the most compelling. So it can't just be a good idea. Can't just be one that's going to make customers love us more. Those are compelling, but those you're going to have a much harder time selling that to me than selling me something that is really going to be about um, helping you know manage that uh, that medical spend and delight our customers yeah. and create you know mem more member loyalty. But um, but admin efficiency and loyalty it's in this environment is those are harder things to sell if that's the only part of your yes, value proposition. That makes a lot of sense. And do you think that's, you know, if you look at the Teladoc and Livongo, you know, what's happening there, is that the story that it's taking out that medical expense that they've figured out how to manage chronic diseases in a way that uses less expensive medical resources and have used technology to, is, is that the, am I, am I putting yep, to So we've been a long time Teladoc uh, client and in fact gave them a lot more business in the wake of COVID. Um, they, for instance, were not a benefit that was available to our Medicare members. We quickly brought that, uh, brought that on board. They've been a great partner. Um, and uh, in the interest of disclosure, we're in the process of doing some work with Livongo prior to this deal. So just to put that out there, but I think that's certainly been their value proposition. Livongo being very, or in the early days, very much aimed at helping plans and plan members manage diabetes, you know, one of the highest prevalence chronic diseases that has a lot of high costs associated with it, creating a good member experience, but also saving money um, for plans by keeping people healthier and keeping them out of the hospital and having some of the really bad outcomes that can happen if you have unmanaged diabetes. Um, and then Teladoc certainly, you know, uh, that by being in the virtual care space. And so I think what that deal is also reflective of is what we were talking about earlier, frustration about how siloed the system is. I mean, health plans are as frustrated by it as consumers are. People come at us with point solutions. Well, when you come at us with a point solution, we have to integrate them all yeah. to try to create a good seamless member experience. Oh, wow. You know, that's, that's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that'd be another piece of advice is try to pair up with other point solutions so that when you're going to market, you're going to market in a way that allows for that kind of integration. Um, because we as a health plan don't want our members to have to leave our platform, you know, for every individual chronic disease or challenge they might have. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I do think it's responsive to that consumer frustration. I think it's responsive to that payer frustration. And I think now they've just got to be responsive to my earlier point, which is create value. Um, you know, don't be cost additive to the healthcare system because we're already spending too much. Very good. Yeah. I was just checking out the time there, Martin, and I realized we've actually just been talking for 45 minutes and didn't even realize it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we could talk for another 45 and, and beyond. Yeah. So, I love talking to you guys. You know I could talk well, to you for hours. So. This is good. So um, unfortunately, we are going to have to wrap it up. Uh, when, uh, so a bit of an unfair question, but if, if, you weren't, uh, if you weren't doing what you're doing today in an alternative world, yeah. What would you be doing? What a great question. I'm going to give you two answers. Oh, cool. Um, if that's okay. Yeah. We've had, we've unfair, had it's not an unfair question. It's a reasonable <laughs> question. But I would say within healthcare, 
uh, I am, I have a lot of energy that I haven't entirely figured out how to apply yet, but around behavioral health, um, which we haven't really talked about in this, um, yeah. you know, in this conversation to date, but I think it is a space that we have really not figured out. Yeah. And I think COVID has shown a uh, light on um, just how much we haven't figured it out. Um, so I don't know if you guys saw it, but the CDC in the um, US released a study done by researchers at Harvard Medical School and the Brigham and Archangels, um, who we partner with on caregiver work, uh, that just had some incredibly disturbing statistics around you know, people who found themselves as unpaid caregivers, so not the professionals working in the healthcare system you know, in this COVID environment. Um, that I'll just highlight. So nearly a third of unpaid caregivers, which many of us have found ourselves uh, in COVID being unpaid caregivers, have contemplated suicide in the last month. A third wow. of unpaid caregivers contemplating suicide in the last 30 days. That compares to a suicide um, ideation rate of about 3% in the general population. That's horrifying. Yeah. Horrifying. Um, and that a third of those how, what are they turning to to cope? They're turning to substances. So they're reporting much higher use of substances, not prescription behavioral health drugs, but um, that to me is just a testament to how we have not figured out how yeah. to support people in vulnerable moments of which this moment in time is, a, is an enormous one. And having, you know, I've got, I, and again, when you start talking to people about um, behavioral health issues and you can kind of open up because there is still so much stigma, but you know, I've got two kids, um, two of my three kids struggle yeah. uh, with depression and anxiety. One of them pretty seriously is in a good place right now. And I lost a great love of my life um, to suicide five and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and when you start talking about this, you find everyone has a story. Um, has someone in their family. And I think we have a long way to go to figuring out how to support people who struggle with this, their caregivers who are struggling to support people with behavioral health um, diagnoses. And this is another area where we're learning more and more about how much it ends up um, resulting in higher costs for people who struggle with other non-behavioral health chronic diseases. Because, you know, if you've got a chronic disease, who wouldn't be depressed? Um, and so that is a space where I really want to figure out how to make a contribution. So that's answer one. Um, and then, uh, and then the other is, I don't know, I'm, I'm a, you know, I, that goes back to that art school background. Um, I do have a creative part of me that I, I feed that part of my soul a little bit more. So, yeah. Okay. Well, we started there and we, we got back there. So yeah. well done by you. Thank you. <laughs> and really important question. I've been curious this whole time. Are those paintings in the background yours? They are not. I have some okay. that are in, in the background. Those are actually not even paintings there. Um, I love, I'm fascinated. Like I see an insect there. Yeah, they're bugs. They are like preserved bugs. But then I have other pictures of my kids on one wall. So I did a lot of photography. So I did a lot of portrait photography. Um, those I took. Yes. So, but they're floating around my house in various areas. Yeah. Now I take a lot of pictures of my iPhone, but I edit them really well. <laughs> I love that we finished on a little tour and uh, of the of the art uh, <laughs> uh, and back on the behavioral stuff. Yeah, I think it's it. It starts with people talking about it, and you know I've I've heard you talk about it previously, very movingly, and and uh, the podcast you did with Lisa, and I think you know it does start by by talking about this stuff. So, 
I yeah. Thanks for sharing that with us, and thanks for spending the time. Just it's been fascinating. It's a, you know, we're almost up on an hour talking here. So thank you, and uh, I hope we get to see each other on Zoom more and in person, hopefully next year. Me too, and I'm so grateful to both of you for the partnership, for your leadership, um, and uh, and really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. So thank you, and keep at it, and I can't wait to see you on Zoom and even better in person at some point. Exactly. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Take care, guys.